Hello, I'm Pastor Eric Longman. Welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Rogers, Arkansas. Each week we gather to talk through some passage of scripture, some interesting topic that has come up in the life of the church, and we invite you to come along for the ride and to listen in. Just a bit of a setup, Holy Trinity is a member congregation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, or LCMS. We believe in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and we place Jesus and his suffering and death and resurrection for the sake of sinful people like you and me at the center of our teaching. If you want to learn more about the church, you can visit our website at www.holytrend.org. The website for the LCMS is www.lcms.org. You should know going in that I'm very much open to exploring rabbit holes in Bible study. My take on it is simple. Whatever passage of scripture that we're looking at is just an entry point. It gets us into God's word. It opens the door for the conversation to go wherever the Holy Spirit takes us. So don't be surprised for us to wander down some pathways that are only tangentially related to the topic at hand. But it makes for some interesting conversation, of course, and we are blessed with a group that's happy to share their experiences along the way. With that, let's jump into this week's episode. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Today is uh, Mother's Day, May 14th, May 14th. Um, so great to have everybody here. Just so everybody remembers, we are recording. Uh-huh. This We have a live or a podcast that we put out um, of this class for those who aren't able to make it. So, you know, don't say anything you don't want on the Internet forever. Um, so before we begin, as usual, um, any questions about anything? Yes. I Oh no. Um, I, I don't know if they do it around here. I mean, when I was a police officer, we would do a lock jock. We, you know, we would does, do it. He's not here today, unfortunately. I know a great locksmith, but unfortunately, that's you know money. Um, you might try. I mean, try calling the police department and see if they will come and unlock the car for you. And if not, yeah, tell them you're at church. Right. I'm short of that, I got a rock. <laughs> I had a friend who told a story about that one time, though, that he got locked out of his truck, and, and he was like, I'm going to have to break a window. And so finally he goes, I'm going to, it was one of those, you know, extended cab, but not like crew cab pickups. And so it had a small window in the back. And he was like, I'm going to break that one. It's the smallest window. It's bound to be the cheapest. No. It is not the cheapest. In fact, it's the most expensive window on the truck. <laughs> I think he said it cost over $500 to replace that little window. <laughs> so be thoughtful about what window you break, I guess, is the, is the lesson in the whole thing. Um, what else? Any other questions about anything? See, that that was perfect because you can ask questions about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Thank you. Did everybody sign this? Y'all know I get paid by attendance, right? We'll send it. Maybe send it one more time just to make sure. All right. Um, in terms of stuff coming up, wow. Like, I got nobody's attention. This is <laughs> This we call this fellowship. Um, in terms of stuff coming up, Pastor Meyer's installation, June 11th at 3 p.m. Um, so come join us for that. That's always cool because um, you have a whole bunch of pastors um, participating in the service, and they all tend to sing loud, too. Um, see? <laughs> Brittany knows, which is cool. It always makes for a neat service. So a lot of good stuff going on with that. We'll have an ice cream social afterwards down the Life Center. Um, so you're all invited for that. Um, come on, see, it's like it's like fellowship time in here, Terry. Is that the one where supposed to bring your ice cream? I don't know. Well, ask Debbie Studdeman. She's the one to ask because she's she's organizing all that. I'm totally out of the loop. Because we are having ice cream in the Right, right. So I'm sure that is. That makes sense. Um, what else is coming up next weekend, Saturday? is the Sleep in Heavenly Peace bunk bed build. Um, and if you haven't done that before, you should. It's a lot of fun. 
um, we gather out in the parking lot out here and we build bunk beds for kids who are sleeping on the floor. Um, and Sleep in Heavenly Peace brings everything we need. They bring all the lumber and they bring all the tools and everything and they've got everything all charged up and ready to go. Um, and there are different stations. So like there'll be a station for drilling holes and there'll be a station for sanding, which is a big part of it. There'll be a station for screwing pieces together. Um, we'll have a station where we're branding them. We actually have a brand that we put on them. I mean, literally heat it up and, and you know, burn it into it. Um, we'll have a station for um, staining, you know, a great big vat that we just dunk those things in. But it's all easy to do, and we'll show you how to do it, and everybody's invited to come help. So where um, do they go to? They, so there's an organization that's local called Sleep in Heavenly Peace. It's a, a local charity, and they work to find families who have kids who are sleeping on the floor. So they will be local. They will be distributed locally. And we'll, we're going to try and build 20 bunk beds. Yeah, so it's a really cool charity. A lot of fun. Um, that's Saturday at 10 o'clock from 10 to 2. I think there's a sign-up sheet out in the Narthex, too. So if you're coming, yeah, if you're coming, sign up so that we know how many people to expect. Um, Helping Hands is coming up the next weekend. That's the 27th. And if you're not familiar with that, Helping Hands is a thrift store in Bentonville, several churches came together to form that many years ago. We were one of them. Um, and so we have an obligation to help staff that every so often. So it's an opportunity, all kinds of things to do. They're, they're a morning shift and that evening sh or afternoon shift. We do the registers, we do stock keeping, we do um, cleaning things up. You can work on the back deck receiving um, donations that are coming in, all that kind of stuff. So. If you'd like to help with that, there's also a sign-up sheet in the Narthex. Dave Leyenbauer is your guy if you have questions about it. Um, what else is going on? Lots of stuff. It's, you know, we're coming into the summer, so we have all kinds of things. Confirmation's coming up on the 28th. Um, that's also Pentecost, and we will receive two uh, young men in confirmation this year, which will be fun. Um, and thank you for saying that, because we will not have class that day. The 9.30 hour will be turned over to a reception for our confirmands and an opportunity for them to share their faith statements and we'll celebrate and eat cake and cheer them on. So, um, um, Caden Adams and uh, Wyatt Winters. Yeah. Um, so that's coming up on the 28th. There's other stuff. Grab a copy of News and Notes and that will tell you what else is going on. Any other questions about anything? All right, let's start with the devotion then. This is um, from the book By Faith Alone, written by Martin Luther. It's just a devotion for every day of the year, and we just use whatever today's is. And I, I joked last time I did it, I was like, I don't know why I show you this, because it doesn't look like this anymore. So if you went to buy one, it wouldn't look like this. But By Faith Alone is the title of it. Today, happy Mother's Day, by the way, all you moms. I didn't mention, though, that I did get that. You found this one. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and it's a it's an excellent set of devotions. It's really good. So okay, it might look like that. <laughs> the verse for today is John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, "If you live by what I say, you are truly my disciples." And the title of this is "True Disciples." Uh, Luther wrote, "Christ preaches about true and false." followers of God's word. He's saying many hear the gospel and stick with it because it is useful to them. They gain money, possessions, and honor from it. Yes, dear friends, who wouldn't want that? This is why I teach that if you live by what I say, you are truly my disciples. For I have two kinds of disciples. The first kind believes in me. They praise and listen to the gospel and say, this is the real truth. I consider these people excellent disciples. They continue to believe. Then there are others who hear the gospel, but when the battle heats up, they say, oh my, I don't know whether I should give up this or that thing for the sake of the gospel. There are only a few who hold tightly to the gospel when there's a cross to carry. Where can I find those who will stand firm? Therefore, I say, if you live by what I say, you are truly my disciples. People would gladly believe in Christ if it meant becoming rich and acquiring a kingdom. But if it involves suffering, then their faith is finished. So Christ knows many of them won't keep on following his teaching. Remaining true to his teaching is rare, especially when evil winds begin to blow. 
Many become Christians and hold on to the gospel in the beginning, and afterwards they fall away, just as the believers in this passage did. It's similar to the parable about the seed that fell on the rock. When the heat of the sun beat down on it, it wilted and it dried up. It's Luke chapter 8, verse 6. But those who stick with the gospel, those are true disciples of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, make us to be true disciples. Give us the strength to continue to believe in you even when there is suffering involved. Draw us ever closer to you. Um, help us to rejoice in your teaching and to find comfort in your death and resurrection. Be with us today as we study your word and guide and lead our discussion that it might be pleasing to you. We ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Questions about last week. We started um, this session on the, uh, the Augsburg Confession. Um, we're kind of working our way through the Book of Concord, and this is the book I was telling you about. This is the reader's edition that you can get from Concordia Publishing House. I think it's about 40, 45 bucks, something like that. Um, but an excellent translation and, and approachable. One of the neat things about this is it includes um, introductions to each of the documents that kind of explain what was going on and why those documents were produced. Because remember, that all the documents that are in this book, and these, this is basically the doctrine of a Lutheran church, all of them were produced for a reason. Um, you know, there was something going on historically that Luther and his followers needed to answer. And so each of those documents has a specific situation into which they were speaking. Now, we hold to them still today, so that gives you a sense of the timelessness of them. But, but it is interesting to understand why some of these things were written and why the things that um, are addressed were important at the time. And so the introductions kind of give you some of that. Um, if you are if you have paid attention to the e-blasts over the last several months, we went through the Augsburg Confession in the e-blasts, you know, a chunk at a time, and gave some of that explanatory material too. So you may have seen some of that already. Um, but we started working through some of this last week, and of course, as is usually our way, our, our joke, by the way, here is um, whatever we're studying, Whatever document we're in, whatever book of the Bible we're in, um, is really just a pretext. It gets us into the Word of God somehow or another, and then we kind of let the Holy Spirit grab a hold of us and take us wherever He's going to take us. So I'm good with rabbit holes, <laughs> and, and we go down them a lot. So understand that the fact that we got through eight questions last week is kind of amazing. Normally it's two or three, <laughs> right? All right, so we got through eight. We're looking at um, just kind of this introduction to the Augsburg Confession, what was going on, the fact that you had um, the electors were the ones who signed off on it, that this was a document that was presented to Emperor Charles V at an imperial diet, which is like a conference or a council in Augsburg. There are a few more copies of this there if you need it, and I don't need this one. You can send that one down or two. Have we got enough for everybody? Thank you. All right, so we were working through the text of the introduction, basically. Um, I'll go ahead and read that. It's just it's good to have it fresh in our minds. Most invincible emperor, Caesar Augustus, most clement lord, your imperial majesty has summoned a meeting of the empire here at Augsburg. This meeting is also to consider disagreements in our holy religion, the Christian faith, by hearing everyone's opinions and judgments in each other's presence. They are to be considered and evaluated among ourselves in mutual charity, mercy, and kindness. After the removal and correction of things that either side has understood differently, 
These matters may be settled and brought back to one simple truth in Christian concord, and then we may embrace and maintain the future of one pure and true religion under one Christ. At the very beginning of the meeting in Augsburg, your imperial majesty made a proposal to the electors, princes, and other estates of the empire. Among other things, you asked that the several estates of the empire, on the strength of the imperial edict, should submit their explanations, opinions, and judgments in German and Latin. Therefore, concerning this religious matter, we offer this confession. It is ours and our preachers. It shows from the Holy Scriptures and God's pure word what has been up to this time presented in our hand, in our lands, dukedoms, dominions, and cities, and taught in our churches. There has always been harmonious action and agreement among the electors, princes, and other estates to hold a council in all the imperial meetings held during your majesty's reign. Even before this time, we have appealed this great and grave matter to the assembly of this general council and to your imperial majesty in an appropriate matter. We still stand by this appeal, both to your imperial majesty and to a council. We have no intention to abandon our appeal with this or any other document. In regard to this appeal, we solemnly and publicly testify here. This, then, is nearly a complete summary of our teaching. We kind of jumped to the very end of it. As can be seen, there's nothing that varies from the scriptures or from the church universal or from the church of Rome as known from its writers. Since this is the case, those who insist that our teachers are to be regarded as heretics are judging harshly. There is, however, disagreement on certain abuses that have crept into the church without rightful authority. But even here, if there are some differences, the bishops should bear with us patiently because of the confession we have just reviewed. Even the church's canon law is not so severe that it demands the same rights everywhere nor, for that matter, have the rights of all churches ever been the same. So we kind of talk about the situation, what was going on, the, the fact that there was kind of a delay in calling this meeting because there was some stuff going on in the empire that required Charles V's attention. So the religious brouhaha that was kind of brewing in, in Germany was secondary as he dealt with the biggest thing was the... the um, the threat of the Turks that were coming in, you know, toward the lands of the empire and were threatening it. Um, so there was a military issue that Charles V was having to deal with. But eventually, this all got to be enough of a problem and kind of rose to a level that he called the Augsburg Diet um, to address some of these issues. And, and the Augsburg Confession, then, is the initial confession of faith that um, Luther and his compatriots put together to put in front of them to say, this is what we've been teaching. Um, tell us where we're wrong, basically, is what they're saying. Um, and we kind of looked at the first several questions about the tone of this, you know, the fact that they were very conciliatory, that they were, they were desirous to have a conversation, to talk about things because they wanted to get people into scripture and take them to the sources to say, this is why it should be the way it is. Um, and they wanted to basically say, hey, listen, there's there's a couple things we're doing here. First, um, we're not teaching anything weird, okay? Everything we're teaching is consistent with what the church has always taught. And they lay it out. They're very clear about it. Then the second thing is, but there are some things going on in the church that are not a great idea. There's some things happening in the church that we got a problem with, and we need to talk about these things. And so they lay those out as well. So those are the two main things going on in the Augsburg Confession. So question nine is where, what we've gotten to. What action did the Lutheran confessors request of Emperor Charles V in the event that the differences between the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics were not peaceably settled? What did they want him to do? Basically, it's kind of the end here. Even There is some disagreement on certain abuses. Even here, if there are some differences, 
The bishops should bear with us patiently because of the confession we've just reviewed. Essentially what they're saying is, listen, Charles, if, if, they're, if they still have a problem with some of the things we've written, tell them to play nice. Yeah. I, that's kind of what they're saying. They're like, Charles, can you just tell them to sit down and talk with us? Let's work this out and hammer it out and be nice. Now, understand the context in which all this is happening. Luther's not there, right? Because Luther is under an imperial edict that he can be killed. You know, there's basically a hit put out on him. Oh, yeah, on site and, and with no penalty. So Luther's not there because the, the emperor has already put out a, a, an edict against him. And the edict came because the pope had issued a bull, which is a, a declaration from the pope, kicking Luther out of the church. So essentially what they're saying is, listen, the, the Roman Catholic Church, I'll get to you in a second, Terry. The Roman Catholic Church has kind of come at this really aggressively. And what we're asking is that you tell them to play nice. Let's talk through this stuff rather than just kind of, you know, coming out with guns blazing, which is what they've done so far. Terry. No. So that happened earlier, actually, and it was mostly a result of the 95 Theses. So if you remember the 95 Theses, Luther was just incensed at what was going on with indulgences, primarily. Um, they had, the, the Roman Catholic Church had figured out that indulgences, in, in, let me try that in English, indulgences were a spectacular moneymaker. Um, and they were, they were using indulgences basically to finance the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And, and what they had done was they had given um, certain clergy the, I say privilege, but I'm not sure that's the right word, to go out and sell these indulgences. And then the one who was doing it close to Luther was a guy named Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel was, was like, like, he would be the best used car salesman in the world. Okay, <laughs> He was a very fine salesman. He had jingles and slogans and all the stuff. And, you know, he had, a, he had a thing that said, you know, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You know, people were like, woo, I want some of that. And so they were buying up all these indulgences. And Luther's looking at it. And he's going, well, hold up. Wait a minute. You're selling forgiveness of sins? Like, what's up with that? And it was based in large part on this idea that the church owned a treasury of merit. Okay, so all the good things that Mary did, for example, I mean, Mary did a lot of good stuff, right? Probably more than she needed to be admitted into heaven. So she had some extra stuff on her balance sheet. Well, her extra stuff went into the treasury of merits, right? St. Paul, he was great, right? That guy, he probably did a whole lot more than he had to. So all of his extra merits went into the treasury of merits. And so the church had this treasury of good stuff and they were selling it. And Luther was like, "Are you? You don't sell that stuff. You give that stuff away. That's what the church is all about." And so he wrote. He basically said, "Hey, listen, I I think we ought to talk about this." And and he's you know he's functioning in a university environment. I mean that's that was primarily where Luther was working at the time. This is fifteen seventeen. And so he said. I think we ought to talk about this. And he put together 95 theses or propositions to be talked about. And he wrote these guys up. And, and as legend has it, who knows if it really happened this way, but as legend has it, he posted it on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg as you know, kind of the bulletin board that said, hey, we're going to have a meeting and talk about this stuff. Here's the agenda. Um, word got around <laughs> because the printing press was around and it was a university town and university kids, you know how they are. Um, and so somebody got a hold of those suckers and copied them and they were sending copies to their parents and all this kind of stuff. And, and word got around and, and it got back to the Pope. And the Pope was like, not having it. He was like, you, as my father-in-law would say, you dasn't speak out against the Roman Catholic Church, which is kind of what he was doing. And so it sort of blew up. And, and there was a back and forth between Luther and the Pope because Luther had gone to Rome and he was like, this is nuts. What's going on here? I thought this was going to be like the holiest place in the world and it's a cesspool. And so there was this whole back and forth between Luther and the Pope. And finally, the Pope just threw up his hands and he kicked Luther out of the church. He was like, I'm not having it. Kicked him out. Um, that didn't stop 
the people who were like, no, we think, we think Luther's right. <laughs> and so you have some electors, and, and Luther's elector, a guy named John Frederick, um, was very protective of him. He was like, no, I think he's right, and we kind of want to follow what he's up to here. And so you had some electors who basically had control over their part of Germany that could say, we're going to follow Luther's teaching, we're going to follow the Roman Catholic Church. It was creating a schism in the church, which Luther never wanted. Luther was like, dudes, let's fix the problem in the church and you know make it right. Um, but it had created the schism, and of course the Pope's bull which, which Luther, in grand fashion, burned publicly. You know, he's like, "Kick me out of the church," and he had a big bonfire party and burned the bull. Um, but so that had happened, and then Charles V kind of came along and he issued this this um, imperial edict against Luther. And so that all is kind of backstory to this, to the Augsburg Confession. The Augsburg Confession now comes as you've got all this upheaval going on in the empire, and and there's a you know, a moment of breathing space where they're not having to worry about the Turks quite so much that Charles V calls a, a diet or a, a council. And he says, let's, let's hash this stuff out. This is, we got to put an end to this stuff. We can't keep going on like this. And so the Augsburg Confession becomes Luther and, and some of his compatriots working with a guy named Philip Melanchthon to actually draft the text of the confession. And it was... Listen, we got to tell the we got to tell the emperor what it is that we believe, so that he can see and realize that there's nothing weird here, because you know people say things, they make up all kinds of wonky stuff, and that's what was going on. The reputation that was getting around was these Lutheran guys. Oh, I don't know what's up with them. You know, probably they're using snakes in worship or something. I don't know. And so what they wanted to do was to kind of put the record straight. Listen, this is what we've been teaching. And any Roman Catholic would look at it and go, well, yeah. <laughs> you know. So that was the whole premise was to say, this is what we're teaching, and here are the few things that we have problems with. That's, that's basically what was going on. And, and their hope then was that, that Emperor Charles V would say, all right, guys, uh, come on. You, you're like, there's hardly any air or light between you guys. Figure this out. Sort it out. So, Luther wasn't there, but the Augsburg Confession was presented by a lay person. I don't remember his name. We talked about it last time, I think. But, um, yeah, I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Charles Beyer, I think, was his name. Um, anyway, he reads this thing out loud, okay, at the, at the um, diet. So, after the confession was read aloud and it was presented to the emperor, a second document was prepared to answer the criticisms that were leveled against the reformers' theology. Philip Melanchthon wrote this confession too. It's called the Apology or the Defense of the Augsburg Confession. Now, the Apology is the first and the most notable commentary on the Augsburg Confession because basically what's going on in the Apology is that Philip Melanchthon is kind of clarifying some things that people maybe misunderstood. What we don't have, and this is important to understand, we don't have the Catholic response to the Augsburg Confession that elicited the apology. Okay, So the Lutherans gave the Augsburg Confession. At some point, the Catholics came back with their refutation. Right? They were like, ah, you guys don't understand a thing. Here's all the stuff you got wrong. And then Melanchthon was like, no, you didn't understand what we were saying. Here's what we meant. And that's the apology. We don't have that Catholic document in the middle. It, it just, for whatever reason, has not survived the test of time. So you can kind of suss out the things that the Catholics had problems with based on the way Melanchthon answers them. Um, but we just, we just don't have that document. But like the Augsburg Confession, it assures us that even though we waver in our faith and we fail to live according to our Christian confession, God in Christ is the one who rescues us from sin and every evil and time and again sets our feet on the right path of faith and life. So um, let me read a little bit from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. This is in your form. It's on page eight. Reader, you now have our apology, our defense. From it, you will understand not only what the adversaries said about our confession, for we have reported in good faith, 
but also that, contrary to the clear scripture of the Holy Spirit, they condemned several articles. I, Philip Melanchthon, have written with the greatest moderation possible. If any expression appears too severe, I must say that I'm arguing with the theologians and the monks who wrote the confutation, that's a document that we don't have, not with the emperor or the princes whom I hold in due esteem. See how diplomatic he is in everything he's writing. Yet I did not discuss all their sophistries, for it would be an endless task. Instead, I deal with the chief arguments so that all nations will have a clear testimony from us that we hold the gospel of Christ correctly and piously. Disagreement does not delight us, neither are we indifferent to our danger, yet we cannot abandon truth that is clear and necessary for the church. We have the public testimony of many good men who give thanks to God for this great blessing. Our confession teaches many necessary things better than any of our adversaries' books. We will commend our cause to Christ, who will someday judge these controversies. We beg him to look upon the afflicted and the scattered churches and to bring them back to godly and continuous harmony. That's from the preface. Why did the confessors, number 10, find it necessary to draft a reply defending the Augsburg Confession? Why didn't they just let it stand the way it was? Why did they have to answer it? If you're going to have any type of discussion which they wanted to mm-hmm. bring about, then they've got to reply to that. Yeah, so it's it's good faith in a sense, yeah. right? It's Listen, we want to have a discussion, and so we're going to discuss. We'll go back and forth. Well, communication is one-on-one. Says right. that. There's three parts to communication. Right, right. So, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, John. It could be important for them to clarify or expound upon things that maybe were misconstrued from yeah. the original document. Yeah. That maybe the, you know, they could have thought, oh, they maybe misinterpreted our original yeah. statement. Yeah. We actually agree on this, so let me explain it a little more. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. To show that we are on the same page and we're still teaching the same truth. So, Article 4 in the Augsburg Confession is on justification. It's <laughs> it's nine lines long in this. See, it's just this little bit. That's the whole article on justification in the Augsburg Confession. In the Apology, <laughs> in the Apology, Article 4, let's see here if I can find it. Okay, here we go. Article 4 starts on page 82 in this book, right? Um, And it goes on and 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 on until there. So it ends, it's 20 pages. So it's one of those things where, just like you said, John, they, they were like, Listen, justification is not that hard. Here's how it works. Justification is faith in Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. Cool. And apparently the confutation, the Catholic response came back and they were like, no, 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 no. Let me explain it to you using smaller words and lots of them. And and so the apology is, is that opportunity to kind of go, okay, you're not picking up what we're laying down. Let us explain it a little bit better. Ken. The Catholic Church would have responded with tradition. I'm sure they would have said this has always been done. So, this has been done since, you know, and uh, yeah. so therefore it should be stand. Yeah, therefore it is. Um, one of the... Cha- Go ahead, John. I was going to say it was interesting about that one up because that one I know is the length and expounded. Yes. Extremely yeah. long up. Yeah. Much detailed. Because the reformers, for that, that was the article that's exactly right. Yeah. If, if justification didn't line up, the entire rest of the argument Nothing else matters, right? Nothing yeah, matters. that's absolutely crucial. Now, to your point, Ken, the, the, remember that part of what's going on here and part of the reason that they're talking past each other, because that is some of what's happening, is that the Lutherans come in, and by the way, Lutheran would just chafe if he heard me call it Lutherans. He had no desire for it to be called Lutheran. 
okay? Um, but with the Lutherans, the Lutherans come in with a particular perspective on, on where authority rests. And it's a little bit different than the Catholic perspective. So for the Catholic, for the Roman Catholic Church, when they come in, Scripture is very high. Like, Scripture's right up there. And we would agree with that. But they put tradition at the same level, okay? Because in the, in the Catholic tradition, right, the Pope has the authority of Christ on earth, and therefore whatever the Pope says becomes doctrine. And anything the councils say becomes doctrine, and that's the tradition piece of that. Um, and, and it's one of the things that Luther pushed back on, because he was like, hold up a minute. You, you can't say you have two different sources of authority, particularly not when those sources of authority don't necessarily agree with each other. Like, that's a problem. And so the Lutheran perspective was to say, listen, Scripture is, the, Scripture is the top of the list here. Scripture is what we call the norming norm. It is the thing by which everything else is judged and, and the thing to which everything else has to be, with which everything else has to be consistent. Okay? And, and so the Lutheran perspective brings that and says, listen, the top of the list here is Scripture. Everything else is subject to Scripture. It has to be consistent with it. And the, and the Catholic tradition comes in and goes, well, yeah, kind of, you know. But, hey, there was this council back in 381, and they said this, and so we're going with that. You know, whatever the most recent thing is, maybe that's what, that's what prevails or something like that. And that's, that's a fundamental difference. Like where you find the source of authority is a fundamental difference in how the Lutherans were approaching things and how the Catholics were. And it's part of the reason they talk past each other. Um, and a good, a perfect example of that is the word faith. Like, like words have meaning, right? And, and you expect and hope that when you use a word that the person who's hearing you has the same understanding of what the word means. And, and you know, words are, are freighted, for lack of a better thing. They, they carry nuances and, and implications and that sort of thing. Well, faith is a great example of that. Because to a Lutheran, faith means essentially trust. It means that I believe in Jesus Christ, that, that his life and death and resurrection have accomplished for me what he says they have. And I believe and trust in the promises of God. That's faith and thereby I am saved. Not because of anything that I do, but because of what Christ has done for me. I believe, you know, Jesus said it, I believe it, that's it. That's, that's what faith is. But to a Catholic, faith means something a little bit different. I mean, it certainly means that, but primarily faith is just an intellectual assent, a, a nod to what God has said, but it's not the entirety of it. We're kind of getting back to that whole idea that justification is the issue on which the faith hangs. So is justification based on what you believe or is justification and what Christ has done or is justification based on what you have said yes to, and then the stuff that you do. Now, you both use the term faith to mean those two very different things. And so there are plenty of places where we're kind of talking past each other because we're using the same words, but not with the same understanding of what they mean. Okay, And that's part of what was going on here too. So tradition's a big piece of it. You know, we bring in not just scripture and not just Jesus Christ, but also all of the councils and all of the popes and all of the decisions that have been made and all that other stuff? Or do you put everything under scripture and require that it be normed by scripture? That's, that's a starting point. And those two very different starting points lead to a lot of misunderstanding. Thoughts, comments, questions, complaints? Okay. Um, Number 11, see, look at that. One question, and what do we get, 15 minutes on? <laughs> Number 11, characterize and evaluate Philip Melanchthon's tone in writing the apology of the Augsburg Confession. What can we learn from him for sharing our gospel today? What is his tone? Let's start with that. What's the tone of, of what he wrote based on what we heard a minute ago? Deferential. Mm -hmm. Deferential is a good word, yeah. What else? He was very polite, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. Deferential, mm -hmm. polite, thoughtful. Mm -hmm. um, as you read through the Apology in particular, 
one of the things that you see is that he's very careful to present the Catholic um, perspective accurately. And that's, and that's sort of fundamental to debate. If any of you were in debate club when you were in high school or anything like that, one of the most important things is that you accurately understand and state your opponent's position. So that in such a way so that if your opponent heard you say what they're arguing, they would go, yep, that's what I'm arguing. Right? And so Philip Melanchthon is very careful to do that. And it shows a great deal of respect um, to say, I hear the argument that you're making. I understand what you're saying. Now, let me explain to you why I think it's wrong. So that's kind of the tone that's going on in this whole thing. Now, it's probably a good thing, just as an aside, that Philip Melanchthon was the one who wrote this and not Luther. <laughs> because Luther, Luther was colorful in his language sometimes. In fact, if you look online, there is um, an insult generator that uses um, language from Luther's writings because he, he wrote some really spectacular insults. So he tended to get a little bit um, snippy in his writing because he didn't, he, he, he didn't suffer fools gladly, I guess is a good way to put it. I mean, he, he basically knew what he believed and doggone it, he was going to stick to it. And he could tell you why he believed it too, right? He could point to where in scripture it said that, what, you know, what the basis was for his belief. Philip Melanchthon was much more of a, of a statesman and a, you know, he, he handled that role. Paul well. on your sermon today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, yeah, he came in understanding kind of where they were and then dismantled it. Yeah, it's a good point. All right, other thoughts on that? So what can we learn? And this, it's interesting because 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 is included in our readings today. <laughs> so what can we learn from Philip Melanchthon for our sharing of the gospel today? Is there a lesson to be taken away from that? Be considerate. Yeah. Oh, yeah, be considerate. Uh, the verse here says, you know, always be prepared to give an explanation for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect, you know? That, I mean, we should share the gospel, but we do it in a way that's kind. Um, there was, when I was in college, I went to the University of Georgia, and there was, there was a guy and his wife, brother, what was his name? I think it was Brother Joseph and his wife, Sister Cindy. And they would stand outside of the, of the bookstore on campus at the University of Georgia and basically shout people down about their faith. And then they were, they were basically telling everybody that they were heathens and they shouldn't be drinking and they shouldn't be sleeping around and you're going to go to hell and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and you know, I just you think back on it and you're like, do you suppose they won anybody over like that? <laughs> there was a sideshow, basically. Now, the funny thing is I'm on a Facebook group of, you know, old Athens, Georgia, and, and they still come up. I mean, people still talk about them. But not in the sense that, like, oh, you know, I came to know Jesus because they yelled at me. <laughs> it just doesn't happen like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, be kind. Be thoughtful. Be, you know, take the time. Understand people. Um, and then share with them what you know about Jesus. Because, you know, how does Jesus come to you? He doesn't come to us, you know, with a finger wagging, threatening. He comes to us with an offer of salvation. He comes to us saying, hey, listen, I've taken your sins on myself. I've covered it all. I got this. Now, listen, here's what I need you to do. Love people. <laughs> Be nice. Yeah. I like the way that on the original uh, confession and then on the... We've got everything is, oh, you're wonderful... Uh, King, you know, you're yeah. wonderful, all-knowing. Yeah. You know, just butter you up real good. Well, and, and a lot of that is, a lot of it is, listen, Charles, we don't have a problem with you. We're all good with the empire. We're all good with you as the imperial majesty and all that. That's fine. Uh, we do have some problems with these guys. Though. And, and so, you know, they're kind of, they're, they know what side they're better buttered on, yeah, right? That's <laughs> When you read that opening and yeah. on both of them, it's the same thing. Hello, you're nice. Yeah, yeah. We exactly. like you. Somebody got a phone going off or something? Did you get a phone? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, and understand, and this is interesting, um, who, who had a hand in appointing the emperor? 
Pope. The Pope. The Pope. Yeah. It was the Pope who anointed the emperor. It was the Pope who put him in his place. So it's kind of interesting to butter up the emperor knowing that you're going after the people who kind of put him in power. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's no little bit of politics going on here, too. It's hard to debate, though. It's hard to debate current situations and, and find something to agree with people on in regards to abortion and, and yeah. homosexuality. Yeah. You, but you should find something that is agreeable. Yeah. And I don't know... <laughs> find a point of agreement or, or find at least find a place of understanding. Some relationship that yeah. they can see. Yeah. And, and too often, I mean, you're right. I mean, we live in an age where, you know, political discourse is nasty and ugly and divisive. And yeah. it's just, it's all of those things. And, you know, in, in the end, what social media has done to us, and I, I put all of this at the feet of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all that other junk. What it has done is dehumanized other people so that we can't sit down and talk to somebody else as another person. We sit down and we talk to them as their positions on things or something like that. And and it, it kills discourse. Go ahead. Well, quite often opinions become facts. Yeah. They really are not. Yeah. Well, and, and, and not just that, opinions become judgments. Um, so we, you know, we judge other people um, rather than taking time to understand them. Terry. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we have family members that are homosexual. Huh? We speak to them about the sins of homosexuality, yeah. but in a loving way, and we still have a respectful relationship yeah. Yeah. out in the world to gain that back. Yeah. You're right. And the world has chosen the sins that it wants to, you know, elevate, make worse or something like that. And that's one of them. Um, but, yeah, Robert. Uh, a lot of times, uh, some people would... Good-minded people, gentle people, kind people, uh -huh. um, they listen to gossip and they think it's true, like yeah. she said. Yeah. And they believe it yeah. without verifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they condemn others. Yeah. Yeah. And social media has become a megaphone for that. Yeah. Stuff. I mean, it's That's just, true. It's so true. I, it, I, have, I have an Android phone, right? And, and one of the things that Android gives you is a news feed, I'm sure. Apple does it too. iPhone does too. But you know, you scroll through that news feed and it's just, it's so disheartening because so many of the things that show up in my news feed now are about somebody complaining about somebody else or, you know, one of the recently that I read, and this is just, just the example that popped into my head, was somebody fussing about a Mercedes dealership because they have a, a new Mercedes EQE, which if you're familiar with it, is, is a Mercedes electric car, an EV. And they had taken it in for a scheduled service. And when they picked it up, the dealership, can you believe it, gave them a receipt that said they did an oil change. <laughs> and they were furious about it because EVs don't have oil to be changed. And clearly, this is just awful. And, and it wasn't until you get to the very, I mean, it was just the whole thing was like stoking that outrage and all this kind of stuff. And you get to the very end of the article and there's like one sentence that says, and we consulted the dealer and they said that the tech put the wrong code accidentally and put the one for a gas car instead of an electric car. Cost the same. They just accidentally wrote the wrong thing down. But, but you know, yet we've still got to have a news item to blast them for this. And, and there's so many things like that where, where, Discussion, like sitting down and talking with people, has just completely gone by the wayside. I, you know, you see it in politics. I mean, Washington, D.C. is a joke anymore. What happened to all the statesmen? I, I think, and I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not taking a political position, understand this. I think Teddy Kennedy might have been the last true statesman. You know, how long has Teddy Kennedy been gone? But he was the last one. I mean, the guy was hard left. Democrat, you know, very fixed in his views. And yet he was able to sit down and talk with people and actually come to some way forward. Nobody does that anymore. Nobody does that anymore. I don't know, you know, necessarily agree with Teddy Kennedy, but at least the guy could talk to people. At least he could see them and, and hear what they had to say. John. Well, I'm a little older than many people in this room. Yeah. I can tell you, if I went to that dealership, yeah. 
to the tech that made the mistake, yeah. he wouldn't correct it because the computer, this is what the computer says. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you can't discuss it yeah. because of people yeah. anymore because the computer is... The computer is. said. That's about to get worse with AI, too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> people, people can't think for themselves You're and right. work it out themselves. Right. They've got, got to rely on my boss. Said, yeah. It's in the computer, and that's the way it's going to be. Even yeah. though it's wrong, that's the way it's going to be. Yeah, sadly, that's true too often. Too often. Everything's changed so quickly. Quite often, those people who are doing the work have not changed or understand the change. They yeah. don't realize that they should not have used that. Yeah. And, and I mean, ultimately, what it comes down to is, do you approach it as two human beings or or not? And, you know, what you're describing is not that. So. Wasn't that in Hawaii that the GPS told this couple to drive their car? Into the water? Yeah. And they did? Yeah. <laughs> well, it said. I followed the directions. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> I think we kind of talked about this already, but what are some of the difficulties and dangers that we can expect as we witness our faith so that all nations will have a clear testimony from us that we hold the gospel of Christ correctly and piously. We're going to be accused of being uh, everything. That might happen. We will be accused of being sure. bad guys. Sure. We will be accused of killing people to everything wrong. Yeah. Um, listen carefully. If you haven't already been to church today, listen carefully to the epistle from 1 Peter, which speaks about this specifically. And basically what it says is, hey, listen, you know, who's going who's gonna to harm you if you do what's right? Mm -hmm. um, but they might. And if they do, and you're standing on the side of Christ, that's okay. You know, it's all right. Guess what? Christ died for you. You know, talk about suffering. Um, last thing, what does Melanchthon pray for God's church? And what can we, as God's redeemed people in Christ, pray for the church and for her mission today? Unity. Ooh. He, did, he did want them to be unified. Yeah. Um, so his prayer, he said, We commend our case to Christ, who will someday judge these controversies. We beg him, Christ, to look upon the afflicted and scattered churches and to bring them back to godly and continuous harmony. He's praying for unity. He's praying for harmony. He's praying for a, a true confession of the faith, right? That the churches would be drawn to Christ to speak his words. That's what we're called to do. News, newspaper today, 76 Methodist churches are leaving. Yeah, yeah. And it's the chaos of, of those who want to do what Melanchthon talks about and those who don't, right? That they want to, they want to speak faithfully what the testimony of Christ is. We have is. to watch ourselves because there come a time when we have to leave. Well, and, and you know, some of you remember this happened in 1974. Yeah. Um, there was an occasion when we had an opportunity to either drift away from Scripture and from a clear proclamation of the faith, or stay fast to it, and we held fast to it. Um, and if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, it was an event called Seminex. Um, what happened was you had some professors at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis who were kind of on the latest academic bandwagon with something called historical criticism, which, which essentially undermined the authority of Scripture. Um, it, it tried to look at Scripture in a, in a novel way that basically undermined its authority. And um, enough people in the church rose up and said, hold on, that's... That's not going to fly. Um, but it, it led to a split. Um, you had a walkout at Concordia Seminary of, of quite a few of the students there. Um, there was, a, I think, a lot of the, the uh, faculty was either sacked or left. Um, it created a whole new Seminex with Seminary in Exile um, that was just sort of stuck in between church bodies. And it was kind of a mess. But... We did stand firm on the teaching that Scripture is the inspired Word of God. Just no, it was it was really focused on Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Um, Fort Wayne was less affected by it. Um, in fact, I don't think they had any professors who were who were going down that road. When did that happen? It was 1974. 
Well, most of them landed ultimately in the ELCA. Um, and I wonder kind of how they think about it today. Um, because that was sort of the beginning of a slope that led to the, the dumpster fire that the ECA, ALCA is. Ooh, that's on the internet forever. Um, but, I mean, it's just, you know, theologically, it's just a mess. And they've sort of embraced every wild theory of, of theology, and it's, it's led to just this hot mess of uncertainty about anything. Um, and a lot of them landed there, but I, I suspect that they made, I think more than a few came back, too. So, anyway, interesting stuff, think, weird history. Why do you think it is that the ELCA is growing much faster than, than uh, we are as a very Itching ears? They're telling, people, they're telling people what their itching ears want to hear, which is the way Timothy would put it, right? Um, so rather than standing firm on what Scripture actually says, they're, they're telling people what they want to hear. And people love that. The branch of the Methodist Church has done it. Homosexuality yeah. is all right, and women preaching, and you know all of the other things. Sure. So I, I will. I mean, I'll I'll tell you what I where I think the ELCA went awry. Um, they made a, a subtle change in their stance, and where we say that Scripture is the inspired Word of God, the ELCA changed it and said that Scripture contains the inspired Word of God. And it's a really subtle change. But the difference then is, if Scripture is the inspired Word of God, I've just got to, I've got to deal with it, right? I mean, I might not like it. <laughs> there may be some things in there where God's doing stuff that I'm like, ooh, I don't think I would have done it that way. But, you, you know, you just got to kind of live with it. If it just contains the inspired Word of God, then I get to, you know, cut out the stuff that I don't like, and I get to sort of pick and choose what I think is actually the Word of God. And, and it leads you down some roads where essentially you're constructing your own God as opposed to letting God be God, which is sometimes hard. But, you know, they, they allowed that to happen, and I think it has led them down a path that's not good. So, so that's what you think is the reason why the other churches that do believe that homosexuality and all that stuff, okay? I think. Well, I, I think they want to be they want to be kind and nice, which there's nothing wrong with that, right? We we're just talking about it. we should be kind and nice, but we also need to stand firm on the things that Scripture is clear about. And and I think the one of the biggest problems. I mean, you know, here let's get into something really thorny in the next thirty seconds, but. I think one of the biggest problems is that in society, what we've done is we have turned the sin into the person or turned the person into their sin. You know what I mean? So that we judge somebody based on what their sin is rather than seeing them as a person who, who sins just like all of us do. Right. So and it, it's an identity problem and it, it's actually an identity problem that has been fostered by some of these um sort of fringy kind of groups, right? So, so your identity, I mean, let me just be really clear about this. Your identity is in Christ. That's where you find your identity. Whatever your sin might be, and we all, you know, everybody's got their own pet sin and all that kind of stuff. Your identity is to be found in Christ. But you have a group of people who have sought their identity in other things. It's idolatry, ultimately. That my identity is in my what gender I identify is, as. You know, there's the word identity right there. Um, my identity is in my sexual orientation. My identity is in, you know, whatever it is. They've sought to find their identity internally rather than finding it in Christ. And it, and it, it creates all sorts of confusion. And it leads you down, I think, ultimately a not very helpful path. Um, but, you know, we, we should be kind. Because... Uh, homosexuality, okay. Alcoholism, okay. Divorce, I mean, all these sins, you know. We've all got our own sins. They're still beloved children of God. And I'll remind you of this, and I, that this is something that, I think it was Dale Meyer, the president of Concordia Seminary, preached a really powerful sermon with, with the tagline, remember, you have never 
looked into the eyes of another person for whom Jesus Christ did not die. Every single person you have ever met is a person for whom Jesus Christ died. And that orients the way you interact with other people, and I think it would be good for a lot more people to hear and understand that. You know? So, we got, we got like four questions done. That was good. Let's, um, let's close with prayer. We thank you, Lord God, for the blessings that you give to us. We thank you for um, the clear statement of faith given in the, in the Augsburg Confession and in the Apology. Uh, we thank you that we stand and, and we are members of a church that is bold enough to preach your gospel in its purity uh, and to lead people to this font of, of wisdom and, and grace and mercy um, that ultimately leads to our salvation. Help us to be true to that, to continue to preach your word purely so that others might come to know your son, Jesus Christ, and come to know the salvation that is in him. Um, guide and lead us in everything that we do, uh, that we might interact with people with kindness and gentleness and respect as we share the truth of your gospel. Um, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Well, thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. I pray you learned a bit, that you met Jesus, and that your faith was built up through the discussion that you just heard. If you want to learn more about Holy Trinity, you can visit our website. It's www.holytrin.org, H-O-L-Y-T-R-I-N.org. The website for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, the LCMS, is www.lcms.org. Thanks. God bless you. Have a great day.